Hey everybody, it's T with the UFOs Want to Tell You Something. So today we're going to finish off Pat's story. I'm going to touch on the Turner thesis. I'm going to give you a little part of Little Grey Bastards talking about visions of calamities and alien abductions. And I'm going to introduce you to Polly, which we're going to cover next in Take. So, let's get it. In 1986, all the memories of aliens in the military came flooding back into Pat's life. Now, Pat didn't want publicity, but asked Dr. Carla Turner to put her location of Floyd Knob, Indiana, as well as the year of 1954, in the book in hopes that somebody would come along and, you know, remember seeing the military vehicles, you know, coming through the town and provide a little outside verification other than her brother and her sister. When Dr. Carla Turner asked Pat if she had any more odd events happen in her life, the answer was not surprisingly yes. You see, Dr. Carla Turner knew from her research as well as the research of others that abductions don't just occur once in your life. Rather, they start from childhood on multiple abductions, and multiple encounters. It was the fall of 1962. At this point, Pat's a teenager. Pat and her friend were making a trip to Kentucky, but they got lost. Now, while being lost, they run into a sign that says Fort Knox on it. They left laughing about their confusion and retraced their steps in search of their destination. But the girls ended up in a deserted train yard. In their car with the engine off, Pat said they felt as if they'd just come out of some unremembered experience with no idea of why they why the car was stopped. Frustrated, the two girls gave up and headed home at dark. But Pat had a dream. Pat recalled being out of the car with her friend beside her. She saw a ripple of golden light like an elevator moving up at an angle, with angels on both sides. She said they were respectful of the blonde man, who seemed to her like Jesus. Her friend was screaming hysterically, They want you! Pat told her friend, Don't be afraid, it's okay. She approached the blonde man, who was engulfed in the beautiful light. He spoke to her about being a mother, and about a seed of life. He stated he had the power of all seed in his hand. At the end of this experience, he held out his hand to her and showed her a seed, telling her it was for her benefit and to have no fear. A few months later, Pat, now pregnant, moved to Florida. She remembers telling her husband that the baby would be a boy, but that it wouldn't be a viable. I'm going to have it but not keep it, she said, unable to explain how she knew this would occur. For the next few months, she and her two children lived in a garage apartment. One night, Pat came to consciousness, just as she was walking into the apartment, as if she had been outside. Although Pat didn't recall being there, she felt awed and a pleasant vibratory sensation. She then thought 
They came and got me. Pat says nothing more seems to have taken place in this time frame. She continued to have prenatal checks and everything seemed okay. But then the eighth month came. The doctor could not find a fetal heartbeat. She delivered her baby in May, full term. The baby sadly passed away due to being stillborn. What she said was true and came to pass. Later that year, Pat remembers finding herself in a quiet room surrounded by greys and waiting for something. The grey she thought of as her friend appeared in the doorway showing her a baby. He told her that she had the choice to see the baby. No, Pat replied. It's okay, it's fine. You'll take better care of it than I could. But in that brief glimpse, she saw a tiny, skinny baby with blue slanted eyes. She felt that somehow this baby was a repository for the soul of the child who died at birth. And she said she felt trusting and thankful toward her friend for showing her this little boy. And that it had in a sense survived. Of the memories that resurfaced over the years, one raises the most questions. The Cocoon People. I can't remember when the actual event might have occurred, said Pat. All I recall is being in a large room with a soft white lighting, and one of the greys was there. I vaguely recall seeing a human male there, but not what he was doing. Part of this large room is filled with what looked to be sarcophagus-like boxes. And in this box was something that appeared to be human forms. They were alive, Pat recalled, but not animated. There was a white misty stuff all over them, and I knew the misty stuff kept them alive. I knew they were waiting to come to life in the future. The being then asked Pat, do you want to see yours? As Pat told the being yes, she was shown a female body. It was in one of the containers. Don't ask how I know it was a female. I just felt it, she said. I saw a little bit of a human face through the mist. Like a nose, mouth, eyes, definitely human. I knew this was connected with the 1954 visit because I remembered they told me that they were making a new me. I felt this cocoon was the new me. I felt that they are waiting for the resurrection or reanimation and we will all be able to see and talk with them here on earth, she said. If I were to die now, I believe my other body will house my soul. When Jesus says it's time, and I too will come back, if I live through the destruction to come, into the new world, I will still need my other body, as this one I have will die anyway. In her mid-forties, Pat had experience occur with beings again, and at this time she recalled being in a room lit with a golden glow. 
She was taken to a desk-sized device, in the top of which were circular openings. In each opening was a different colored vibrating light, and she was told to put her hands in the lights. As she did, she heard the most beautiful sound she had ever heard. Each light made a different sound. The sound of your soul, the gray told Pat. Pat understood that this had something to do with the cocoon bodies shown to her before. Bodies that didn't have soul power activating them. In 1987, Pat had another possible experience, far more typical of the usual abduction experience. This also included her grandson. Was this a dream? Pat pondered while relating the story to Dr. Carla Turner. I have no proof. I was in my daughter's house, and it was nighttime, said Pat. I seemed to be floating to my grandson's room. I took his hand, and we floated together, upright, about six inches off the floor. We, f we floated out the front door, out to the driveway, and stopped while the gate swung open on the side of the road. There were about 10 to 15 beings across the road in the woods. They all rose up out of the woods at the same time. I could hear my grandson think, Mima, can we play with those kids? No, honey. These are special kids. They don't play like regular kids. We floated down the road to the end of the cul-de-sac. There in the dead end circle was a ship with red blips that went around it, a saucer. There was a door with a light. We floated up the ramp and I saw my being friend and then I don't remember anymore. Anyway, said Pat, my grandson and I went together on this trip or I'd rather call it a dream. I'm not sure. Pat had a number of intensely affecting experiences that occurred while she was in a meditative or dream state. And so she was unable to feel confident that they were real. In some of these dream events, she has seen a variety of flying craft. She has had apparent out-of-body experiences, and she received telepathic communication. In 1992, it was October, and Pat had an event that seemed related to the previous experiences. I dreamed that someone was talking to me mentally, telling me things that I couldn't grasp the exact words, but I heard the sentence like this. This destruction comes in four quarians. Quarian is not a word we know, but I took it to mean four parts of some kind. Then I saw what I call a graph. I felt as though I was getting a gentle warning of the bad time on Earth, like it was very near to happening now, said Pat. Such warnings have been given to Pat various times throughout her life. But not only Pat, many abductees report this through their experience. To quote Dr. Carla Turner, is one of the most commonly reported events in this phenomenon as are the reports of marks on the bodies of abductees. 
And here again, Pat fits the pattern, states Dr. Carla Turner. In the summer of 1993, Pat discovered an odd design on her inner wrist. A circle of six dots with the seventh dot in the center. This design, incidentally, was reported in a handful of cases in 1991 and 1992, as it was not to be a coincidence that all these cases have mostly come into Florida, where Pat lives, said Dr. Carla Turner. A few months later, Pat later had an experience relating to an odd circle pattern. I had a dream in August 7th. In the middle of the afternoon, she explained, it was one of those naps that makes you hit the bed and you're out like a light. There were voices in my dream that sounded like soft whispers and I began to listen more closely. There was something said about being innocent like a child and this feeling flooded my whole body and soul. I felt like being in a state of pure innocence without knowing anything about fear, hate, or prejudice, a pure wonderful state of being in love, secure, protected, and without sin, as we call it. I saw a scene from my childhood of a town we lived in. It looked like it did way back then. I saw myself about 11 years old. My feeling in this dream was great. Then a voice said to me, get up child and look to the nebulous. It can take you there. And in my dream, Pat said, I got up and I unlocked my back door and looked up into the daytime sky and saw a most beautiful circle of lights with one light in the middle spinning around like marquee lights on a movie house all spinning in a golden color. And the voice said, I cannot go now because I was pleading to go to the nebulous now. When he said I could not go now, I begged him to let me see it when I was in my conscious mind. He said he would, but I haven't seen it yet, said Pat. It was like a wondrous thing from another time in my life, but my overall feeling was that I would have died to go to the nebulous. I woke up very groggy, like I was on drugs, and then I hurried to write it down before I could forget. The nebulous design was the same as the design on my wrist. Pat felt she knew and understood what nebulous meant. She associated it with the lighted circle object she first saw. But nebulous is an adjective rather than a noun nebula, is the proper form and thus there is no specific definition for reference other than cloudy, lacking form and unidentified. According to the dictionary, said Dr. Carla Turner. Two months later, exactly, on October 7th, while conscious, she recalled another communication. A voice said to Pat, The nebulous is a code. The code has been broken. Pat saw a whole nebulous followed by a broken one. I could see a jelly-like stuff that connected the dots. I knew the nebulous was then something that was in our bodies when we were created. Pat goes on. We were supposed to have a perfect nebulous. This gave us personal contact with the creator. When the nebulous was broken by disobedience, we no longer had personal contact with our creator. 
We had to adapt to living on our own, thus losing our innocence and pure state of being in human form. Dr. Carla Turner goes on to explain, This image reinforces Pat's altered understanding of God and a spiritual plan. Overall, her experiences with alien entities have been, to the best of her conscious recollection, felt very positive. With a strong religious faith, she has accepted them as angels. In my abductions, says Pat, I have never gotten a feeling of evil. In fact, I felt most protected while in the presence of these beings. Some people may say that these beings have the power to control what you feel and think at the time of the abduction, which they most certainly do. I'm hanging on to childlike faith that Jesus tried to teach us, and I believe that what I felt was true and good. Why would an all-loving God allow little children to be abducted if the beings were evil and meant to do us harm? I don't believe God would allow it. Even so, there are things which these beings do that seem to be wrong to us and seem violent. There was one disturbing experience which occurred on July 24th of 1993. It not only involved an alien entity, but also what appeared to be two human men and a human environment. Pat awoke early in the morning hours groggy and feeling as if she'd been drugged as she had so many times before. She heard a very odd pss, 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 pss noise very near her. Pat then recalled two men come into her bedroom and carried her outside into a waiting military truck. Pat was in a drugged state of consciousness, going in and out of consciousness, as the truck slowly moved and drove for 45 minutes to an hour. In a state of lucid consciousness, she heard the two men having a low conversation that she couldn't understand. She attempted to speak, but her tongue was too thick and unwieldy. The truck turned left into a rough surface, and Pat came to consciousness once more. And in the dark night, caught only a glimpse of the countryside out of the large square front windshield of the truck. Finally stopped, but the engine was still idling. Peering through the window, Pat saw that they were parked next to a large mound or hillside. Incredibly, she saw a large doorway open outward. The truck pulled inside of the hill in a very dimly lit area inside. As the vehicle stopped, she saw a strange being, as if waiting for her, was standing inside this dimly lit place. No more than three foot tall and dressed in a black hooded cape. Pat still groggy thought, what is an oriental girl doing here? An immediate response telepathically came back to Pat. I know you don't like me, said the being. No, Pat thought. No, I don't. I don't want to do this again. But they can't break me, because they couldn't do it before. When the truck finally stopped, she was assisted out. Stepping a far way down from a passenger compartment, Pat saw the area was crowded and dirty feeling with boxes and junk stacked along the wall. She then noticed a stainless steel table in the middle of a large room. These tables were more human looking than the other ones from
from her alien encounters that Pat had uneasily seen before. As a result, Pat felt uneasy about this experience. They wanted me to get onto the table, she said, but I don't want to. Not that table, but Pat did get on the table. But Pat also does not recall what happened. The oriental girl hovered around her, moving close and poking Pat with an unseen object. Pat could not see it, but she did see the entity's face close to hers. Its skin was grayish green in color. When it blinked, its eyelids met in the middle, Pat said. The effect was repugnant, reminding her of a lizard. Pat's next memory was getting off of the table and attempting to see what the oriental girl was doing to her. The entity kept moving around Pat and making erratic pss, 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 pss noises, trying to support herself by holding on to the table. She moved away from the entity. But the entity continued to poke at Pat. Even though Pat was more alert, she still felt unsteady. And as she circled the table, she stubbed her toe painfully against it. When she looked down, she saw the floor was covered in sawdust. God, she thought, this isn't even a real floor. Pat, even more aware now, avoided the being as much as she could feeling that whatever it was doing was some sort of torment to her. She blacked out and awoke in her bed. Pss, 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 pss. Noises were still audible there beside her, just briefly. Two days later, Pat saw a bruise on her wrist with a red dot or a puncture inside of it. Also noting, her toenail was chipped badly, almost into the quake almost as if it had forcefully struck something hard. I didn't like the situation at all, Pat said. I knew it wasn't the first time I had seen the Oriental girl. I've been on that table before. She also remembered the uneasy feeling it made her feel. She knew this greenish-skinned, lizard-eyed being was not human. Even though the two men, the facility, the truck, and the trip certainly seemed to be. What kind of aliens are involved with the government and the military, she pondered. And that's the end of Pat's story. I'm probably going to do a compilation where we put all of her story in one so you get the full story instead of happening to listen to it on three separate podcasts. Quite interesting. Now, what are some of my thoughts on Pat's tale? Now, Pat believed that all this took place. Dr. Carla Turner also believes this. And I do too, actually. Now, 
They continue to play on religious themes for Pat, even though it feels like a masked version of your typical abduction, only dramatized to make it easier on Pat, as well as themselves. But when stripped back, it is your typical abduction narrative. That's actually one of the notes that I took. So when I wrote down most of her odd cases, you do find that. So I'm going to list a couple off for you here. Blonde haired, blue eyed Jesus. Religious. Walk through fire, as in a metaphor of let's see how much you believe that we're angels kind of thing. That's what I made of the fire in the ditch incident. The soul machine. Religious. The perfect human. I considered that religious. The resurrected body. So like the clone or the cocoon people as she put it. Now I don't actually believe there were clones or cocoon people but. Let's say that's religious. The nebulous that she talks about. The communication with the creator through said nebulous. Religious. Angels. Religious. Jesus part two as I put down. Of her and her friend who saw the blonde haired blue eyed Jesus again. Religious. Love and light feeling. So, feeling perfect, loved, without sin, religious. Torment by the one entity at the end, poking at her, or as she perceived it to be torment. I put down religious. The chosen child. I put down religious. Destruction. I put down religious. So, all of those things are some of the dramatizations or altered perceptions of her having a religious experience when really let's let's take a couple here your blonde haired blue eyed Jesus the second encounter right so the first one they were trying to convince her that everything's okay make it easier to come with you this is a holy experience you know these are my angels in other words, let's make this easy on you and us. And for future times to come. You got the second incident. Where he's got the seed in his hand and he's talking about holding the seed of all life and things of that nature. And then she becomes pregnant. So in other words, what we see here is your typical abduction scenario that is reproductive oriented. Her seeing the old friend Gray, right? So with most alien abductions, there's a typical alien Gray that usually accompanies you from childhood on. So you'll generally meet them when you're a child. You you can tell if it's a female or a male just by the voice and the feeling you get. But they look like all the rest of them. And then 40 years down the road, you run into the same one doesn't look like they've aged a day for the most part but it's the same entity and you can tell from the same feeling and the voice and everything even though most of the time these entities have a very monotone voice without accent or even robotic sounding at times so let's go into the typical abduction scenario that is very apparent in this okay so you've got the destruction talk well, we've talked about that on the prior ones. That's where you're shown a screen or a vision 
or even in this case, like a dream of destruction coming. It's a warning. And she talked about that as well. Physical exam. That happened. An old friend. You know, that same little gray that we just went over. That happened. Different entities. That happened. Hybrid baby. That happened. Needle. Instruments. Clothing. Like, you know, the cloaks. That all happened. And that's your typical alien abduction scenario. And when you peel this back, you start to actually see those little bits in there. Kind of like the second interaction with the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus again. Right? Where it's reproductive-oriented, and you can tell that. So my takeaway from this is, it's a very odd case. But it follows the typical alien abduction scenario. Only masked in a religious perspective. Now at the end, if you recall, she didn't feel like any of them were evil. She felt safe with them, even though they do things that seem wrong to us or violent. She still didn't think they were evil demons. And in fact, some of the quotes that I gave there, she accepts that they're aliens now rather than angels. Presumably from talking to Dr. Carla Turner and some of the similarities with other abductions. So what I take away from this is, I can buy it. She's had a lot of dreams. But I can buy it. Just, it's altered to a certain degree. Now I want you to keep in mind that again, some people would take this to a paranormal level 100%. Well, we aren't going to do that here. We're going to break it down and peel back the layers as we just did. So the next time somebody tells you that calling out the name of Jesus will stop an abduction, I want you to remember this story. Because this story actually appeared to her as Jesus. In other words, you think it's going to stop us? Well, here's Jesus. It doesn't happen. It may happen in some cases, but I believe that could be a separate phenomenon. It does not have to be aliens. So I'm going to give you a quote from Dr. Carla Turner's book, Taken. That sums up this Turner thesis that I've coined the term for. Investigators who have not had a personal experience with the phenomena can listen to an abduction account and then ponder the possibilities. Was the person lying? Was it a real event or did it occur on a mental level? What parts of the recollection are real and which are illusionary? But the abductee understands that it may be very well both possibilities at once. Both real and mental. Real and illusionary. The aliens, whether by means of intellectual, psychic, or technological means, are able to create any perception and therefore any illusion for the person in their hands. Now we just witnessed an awful lot of that with Pat. 
And there are plenty more examples out there of that very thing. And if we have to, perhaps we'll start telling the tales of some of the other cases in that book. Maybe we'll start with Polly next, which is chapter 3. Now, I didn't want to go into this whole thing from Dr. Carla Turner because she has quite a fit or quite a few pages just about the Turner thesis alone, which she does not call the Turner thesis. I've named that after her because sadly she has passed away. And for a long time her work went without a, a lot of notice because her books were out of print and stuff like that. Now, I'm going to give another quote here. And I'm going to give this quote because I feel that it is very important. For the sake of clarification, Dr. Carla Turner passed away after a long struggle with breast cancer and underwent breast removal surgery and chemotherapy. Despite the common misconception, it is unlikely that she was targeted by an individual, group, or organization attempting to silence her. Now, if you're one of those fucking dickheads who happens to be assuming that's the case, don't be that asshole. Alright? Now, I've done my research into Dr. Carla Turner, and on Podbean specifically, if you go on and you look up Dr. Carla Turner, there's one lady who has a whole episode about people being taken out for their UFO accounts. Yeah, that's fine. But when you include Dr. Carla Turner and you throw in the pain of their family, because for those who don't know, Dr. Carla Turner herself was an abductee, as well as her husband Elton, and their entire family. If you're that piece of crap who is saying that, just fucking stop. You should probably stop doing research. Because all you're doing is hurting her family over it. Now her being one of my favorite abduction researchers because of her theories and how clear they are. I take it a little personally. And I really feel for that family. Now I just thought this was a funny story. And this one's Jordan Hofer's experience. He talks about a funny yet frightening experience of which happened to him by his closest friends and his children and their children. So they decided to sleep over at their friend's house. And everyone was given their own room. So Jordan Hofer was asleep until about 3.30 and then awakened by a clicking noise. Three greys standing by his bed. He could only see their faces and shouted out, Oh God, no, go away. At this point, he's freaked out and he thinks he's about to be abducted. Little did he know in his fright that the kids and the friends had been planning to trick him for weeks. And the children had woke up at 3.30 to try to trip Jordan Hofer. Now the kids stood back about five foot away from Jordan as he lay in bed. Which makes sense, because 
the parents has entertained the possibility of a heart attack or possibly Jordan Hofer lashing out, as most people would in such a situation. But they considered the risk worth it. And as they laughed, that they finally let him in on the joke as he screamed out, No, no, go away. Yeah, it's just a funny little story I thought I'd throw in there. They tricked him with an alien abduction. So what I'm going to do is, I'm going to put a short clip, about four minutes long, from a talk that's about Dr. Carla Turner's book, Taken. And the clip you're going to hear is from Polly which is the one we're going to go over next. Although I got some interviews lined up, so we're going to throw those in too, but we're going to cover Polly's case as well. I think we're going to go through her entire book. Now, Polly, you're going to see some very interesting things. Now, remember what I said about them not being demons? Well, in this short clip, you're going to get that sense as she quotes scriptures to them, calls out the name of God, and these entities don't leave. And then there's another aspect, which is the poltergeist activity. But she also notes that her child has psychokinetic capabilities, which could explain some of said poltergeist experiences. And we're going to look into that eventually, too. I've got a book that I'm going to buy called Psychic UFOs by Albert Burden. And we're going to take a look to see if there's a connection between psychokinesis abilities and UFOs. They speak to us mentally. They seem to be able to alter our perceptions. Do we have the capability of psychokinesis? I don't know. That's another one of these aspects I'm going to look into, and you're going to take that journey with me. But rather than chalking up the paranormal, we're going to take a look at it and try to find a scientific way of looking at things. I'm asked to share a few experiences with you not speculate on the nature of our experiences. In January of 1987, I awoke sometime in the middle of the night to see two beings about four foot tall standing in front of the south window. They both wore black or dark charcoal gray hoods and robes. The hoods apparently covered their faces, all but their large, slanted, almond-shaped, glowing lemon yellow eyes. These eyes had no pupils. The one to my left stood slightly forward of the one to my right, and the robe of the one to my left seemed blacker than that of the other. I was able to move and leaped off the end of the bed saying, holy shit, this is real. I went down the hall to the room of my eldest son, who was then 17. Because of the black robes, I exclaimed, I've just seen the grim reaper. My son said, so did I. 
And although I said Grim Reaper in the singular, my son then described the same two beings that I had seen. The only difference was that he said that he had seen them in his mind. After a while, I went back to the room where I had been sleeping. My large dog and I sat on the floor at the foot of the bed with our lights on. I would lean back and close my eyes from time to time. At one point, I opened my eyes, and there were the same two figures. My dog saw them and looked back and forth at one and the other, sniffing loudly. Apparently, she was trying to pick up their scent. They said nothing, and I asked them nothing. I just wanted them to leave and told them so quite rudely. I alternately quoted scripture at them, declared the presence of God, and cursed at them. Still, they stood there, gazing toward me and my dog, with their glowing lemon yellow eyes. Finally, they decided to leave. They turned in unison, glided through my second son's toy box, turned again in unison, proceeded out to the hall, and descended the front staircase, the slightly blacker-robed one in the lead. After they had left, my eldest son entered the room where they had appeared. He had gone to sleep after the first encounter and had not reawakened until the end of my tirade toward them. After this, we experienced a significant increase in poltergeist activity in this large Victorian house. Objects would disappear. All four children would help me hunt them. Then often they would reappear right before we knew we had looked. Sometimes they would reappear in totally inappropriate places, like legal documents in a refrigerator. Other times they never reappeared. My daughter, beginning at age eight, almost nine, when this visit occurred, developed strong abilities of psychokinesis. She would turn electrical appliances on and off simply by thinking of turning them on and off when she was in another room from the appliance. She would approach a door hook, think of unhooking it, and it would fly up out of the eye it had been hooked into. Friends and relatives both observed her doing this, much to her dismay. Sadly, her energies were so strong that small animals in her care either died or became paralyzed. We had five yellow ducklings, and all she did was point to one and say, that one is mine, and it immediately fell over and was partially paralyzed from that time until its death the following winter. I managed to nurse it back to partial health, and it grew and developed white feathers but could never wild. Now this part is from Jordan Hofer's book, Little Gray Bastards. And this is the conclusion part. It's page 144. It's, it's near the end. But I thought this part was important, and I'm going to read it word for word here. And I think it's important because I've talked a lot about the visions and apocalyptic scenarios that these abductors show. And you're going you're gonna to see that in this little section here. Greys commonly show apocalyptic images to abductees. This has been interpreted variously as an environmental and anti-nuclear warning to humankind. But the Doomsday movies are nothing so compassionate as a warning. The Greys are sadists and enjoy human emotions that come from seeing the planet destroyed. Recently, I have experienced three powerful images of my home and neighborhood as they appear after nuclear warfare and environmental collapse. The first vision, I was parking my car in the front of the house. 
and it was a brilliant summer day, very hot. Suddenly, my vision flickered, and I saw the suburban street transformed. The light was bright, yet sickly yellow. All the vegetation was gone. No trees, bushes, lawns. Just the baked, dry clay earth, cracked and lifeless. Sedimentation had begun. With the dust encrusting everything, dirt devils spun furiously. Many cars remained, forever parked in front of neglected crumbling houses, caked with dust rusting down to the broken pavement. The second vision, I was in my living room, looking out the large window onto the street. A tornado was busting straight down the block, tearing down trees and sucking up flower beds. My mom was looking out the window when a smaller twister broke off and tore up the vegetation in front of the house. I heard her scream, just as if she and I were really there in the storm. Oh no, my berm! The third vision, I was sitting in the sun in the backyard with my mom, when suddenly the lawn disappeared. All of the vegetation was gone. The soil had completely desiccated and was broken by deep cracks into the backyard landscape of the sun-baked clay. The air was thick with dust. Nothing seemed to be living. Perhaps Dr. Oliver Sacks would categorize these visions as hallucinations, and he would be correct. I did hallucinate all three visions. The question of relevance are, why did I have these specific hallucinations? Are they an esoteric truth to tell from the not-too-distant future? Where did the visions originate? I do not believe that I am psychic. I am, however, extremely sensitive. Its sensitivity has developed into limited precognition abilities. I believe my visions of a post-apocalyptic neighborhood came from the greys and that my own imagination was the conduit to the future that brought on the visions. When I am most reflective on this, I can recall my childhood in which I grew up terrified of nuclear annihilation, lying in bed sleepless, panicking, and for hours in the dark. Were the greys there with me then, as well, feeding me images of mushroom clouds, and ringing death knell of public emergency sirens? Probably. In any case, those visions were actually snapshots of a reported rapidly approaching human extinction event. Soon the droughts will devastate crops and we will starve by millions. As increasing desperate nations turn to nuclear war as policy and the 1% whole up in a fortressed bunker. No help is coming from the little gray bucking bastards. Now again, why do I find this important? Now, the difference is, usually somebody's taken up on a UFO and during the abduction experience, they are literally shown the visions on a television. I mean, it's kind of a television. It's a little screen or simply through your mind. Kim Carl Spurg reported this, as well as many others. 
as we've gone over. Now this seems to be some form of deception. I don't think those things are actually going to occur. And if you're familiar at all with the aerial school case of Rua Zimbabwe in 1992, then you're aware that all 60 of the children who saw the UFO, some of them received telepathic communication from the entity standing atop the UFO that it was a warning of nuclear devastation and a peaceful kind of you're going to destroy your planet why don't you stop kind of thing this is one of those things that keeps occurring now it's not one of the only things that keeps occurring I mean the abduction phenomena in its own you see correlating factors that keep repeating over and over and over and over and you're going to see some of those as we go along through these podcasts if you haven't already You're going to see reproductive material being a very key aspect of it. You're going to see these warnings if you haven't already. Missing time's going to come up. A lot of different scenarios, and we're going to see a lot of the same entities as well. So I just wanted to throw this quick little piece in here. Because that's one of my favorite books, Little Gray Bastards. Jordan Hofer does an amazing job. So, we're going to end it here. Now, next week, we're going to pick up with Polly's story, as well as some other abduction tales. Yeah, I've got some interviews lined up. We're going to get some of those out, too. But I'm going to do another podcast with this where I put all of Pat's story all in one so you can hear the entire thing and I'm going to put her segment from Voices of the Taken in there as well so you can hear her own words on it so this is kind of a two-parter I guess not really but I'm going to throw it all in there so you can get her entire story now again the one thing I want you to take away from this Instead of looking into the paranormal and assuming it's all linked and it's just one big fucking witch's brew of shit. Maybe think that it is a separate phenomenon. And that they don't have to be linked necessarily. So I want to give a shout out again to the Ghoulies for Hot Rods from Outer Space. Badass. And I want to thank you guys for listening. Again, this is T. The UFOs want to tell you something. Please spread the word out there. Get my podcast out there a little bit. Keep kicking.